Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. And with me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. So you have decided to listen to our podcast. Thank you. You had all sorts of options and you used your free will to choose ours. Or did you? To put it more grandly, is free will an illusion? See, any scientist will tell you that if one particle hits another particle at a certain uh, mass, at a certain angle, at a certain speed, it's utterly predictable what will happen to the second particle. And you and I are really just bundles of particles and chemical reactions, right? So some say at the start of the universe when the first particle hit the second, Everything that has happened since, including your decision to listen to us, has been utterly predictable, determined, and that free will is an illusion. Do Now, we think we have free will, but maybe you've had the experience where you know someone really well, something happens, and you know exactly how they'll react. Uh, there's someone I know very well who, whenever she is stressed, I know what she's going to do. She's going to vigorously clean something. My kids know exactly what I will do if they tell me they're going somewhere. I'll immediately work out the quickest way to get there and explain it to them. And I know what they will do. They'll get this glazed look in their eye and totally ignore me. So are we just sophisticated calculators? If you punch in some inputs, running late, sitting in a traffic jam, have a headache, feeling stressed. The output going, ah, and punching your steering wheel in frustration is already determined. There's nothing you can do about it. But if that's the case, how does it all fit in with this wonderful, hopeful of idea of our brains being able to rewire and change and grow? Ian, Unfortunately, I think it's quite hard to find logical flaws in the theory that free will is an illusion, isn't it? I mean, it's quite compelling, the idea of determinism, in a depressing way, obviously. For many behaviourists, and I have confessed here before to being something of a behaviourist, for many behaviourists, it's hard to see the free will element. And certainly, if you study animal behaviour a lot, you see the very high predictability of what most animals will do next, mm. given a set of contingencies, given a set of environmental cues, they seem to do the same stuff pretty regularly and pretty reliably. So the idea that humans are so unique and so different from the other species when it comes to predictability of their behaviour does seem to be a big leap of faith yeah. that uh, we've got this marvellous capacity to override Behaviors. And if you look at predictability of behaviour in humans, as you remark, James, most of us know people who are pretty close to us who pretty much do the same thing most of the time in most situations. So that looks like, you know, although people perceive and say and believe they have a lot of choice, it doesn't seem that they behave that way a lot of the time. Yeah, because we all, I mean, when I say, oh, I know other people who are quite predictable, of course, I don't think it about myself. I think that I'm a, a master of my own destiny, that I can follow my dreams and shape my future and all those other wonderful slogans. There's a whole industry, isn't there, uh, that's been built up about around telling people those things and getting to, trying to motivate them to, to do that, to change their lives. And there are actually some compelling Wonderful stories of people who've done that. 
Yes, and of course, in our society, the other implications, philosophical, which have become moral and legal, that actually you had a choice. You didn't have to do that very antisocial thing that you just did. And of course, we will hold you morally responsible Mm. for that action. You can be appropriately punished for that action is critical. So, you know, two traditions, religious and philosophical traditions, and then legal traditions have said, we must have this thing, otherwise we're in real pickle as to how do we actually have sanctions against this kind of stuff. There must be a choice and there must be some capacity to hold people responsible, accountable for really antisocial actions at the personal or organisational level. So to 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 just dish the concept has a whole lot of other implications. Mm. Of course, in our world, or my world, as you were remarking, James, we, we were from this very hopeful kind of world that people can choose at some level to be different. They can make choices about their behaviour, they can make choices about their responses to situations, and they can override these more instinctual, these more ingrained sets of behavioural stuff. So even though they are predictable and they tend to do the same thing over and over again, we've got this idea that we can, you know, somehow persuade you by thinking about it to choose to be different. And it kind of feels like that's what happens or that, I mean, at least even if you don't make the right choices, that you had the choices – Um, I mean, determinism, I guess, and the lack of free will, that theory suggests we're basically just prisoners of, well, the two inputs into human behaviour we've discussed, genetics and our environment, Um, and free will is a necessary illusion. Yeah, it works the way around that, of course. The, The believers in strong free will... There seem to be also people who believe in punishment a lot, so I don't find this never terribly attractive. But, you know, people who've become drug addicted or people who are alcohol dependent or people who repeat the same pattern of behaviours, despite the obvious bad consequences of that for them and their hazard, well, you know, they must simply lack free will. I must say I've been involved with the old debate stroke argument as you know, James, I'm a little bit argumentative, mm. with the old health minister, with the old, politi- old politician in the mental health area. Now, look, Ian, these are not really illnesses. These are just people's bad choices. You know, they lacked the moral courage. They had, and underneath that, not often said, but underneath that is the strong belief of free will that, you know, everyone has the equal capacity to make the right choice, whatever the right choice is, you know, but the morally superior choice as distinct from the other. Now, of course, James, you've worked as a lawyer. Even when you decide someone's guilty, you then have this long discussion, but what were the mitigating circumstances before you simply condemn them yeah. you know, to whatever? Um, so, you know, even in those legal settings, I think, where we can say the behaviour is unacceptable, even in those aspects of the law which rely on this concept of free will, there is a kind of understanding that maybe for some people it's just not as straightforward as that. Yeah. I mean, when I was at law school, I did an essay on uh, an American, I think it was an American guy who proposed, it was either defence, I think it was almost a defence rather than just a a mitigating factor in punishment. It was called rotten social background. And if you could show the court that you came from a very bad social background, you'd, uh, you'd get off. 
Now you can't, re- I, you know, I mean, the good, the interesting thing about this free will argument is that even if it is hard to argue that we've got it, you shouldn't, you can't live your life uh, on on that basis. In fact, this is almost an argument that you shouldn't listen to this podcast um, because we've all got to live on the basis that we do have free will or else kind of chaos ensures, doesn't it? You know, um, it's a no responsibility and no attempts to uh, to better our circumstances and kind of just a hopelessness would set in. Yeah, so it's interesting that hopelessness, helplessness would, would arise. No one could ever do different. It's inevitable. One country will invade another. It's inevitable. Somebody will kill someone or assault someone. It's inevitable because... The factors that have contributed to those things we can sort of understand or we can document and we can see the drivers of this. The explanatory models that sit behind it are now well elaborated. And this is where the the whole debate about free will, which just in case people think we're going to revisit the whole thousand years of philosophical discussion, this is a very active debate, I must say, in the areas in which I work and in neuroscience and behavioural areas. So it isn't just a kind of, you know, we'll revisit the philosophical discourse. As we better understand as our explanatory models as to why people do certain things get better and better, we fill in more of the gaps. You know, it does look like, it does look like certain kinds of things, genetics, backgrounds, experiences, mediated by certain kinds of neural circuitry inside your head lead to certain responses to certain environmental factors. You don't see a lot of choice (laughs) along the way. So as we've got better and better at that, of actually mapping what's going on inside people's heads... People have gone, hmm, doesn't look like there's a lot of choice in that. It looks pretty uh, hardwired. It looks pretty ingrained, which has led to a really interesting thing as to why do we think it? Because <laughs> you know, like, clearly most of us do think it. Oh, yeah, I've got a choice. Yeah, bad choice. And most of us, when we look at others, oh, terrible choice that person just made. You know, we, we, we are much more attracted to the idea that people have agency, that they're acting in particular ways, that they're making these choices. And then we assign motivations kind of to that of all sorts. So it is a really active kind of thing. And as you say, James, it's come really into the legal areas, particularly in the United States. People get out the brain scans, they get out the neuropsychological testing, they put it in front of the courts, not as mitigating circumstances as, as I raised earlier, but as really you can't hold this person guilty. Now, of course, the lawyers have another thing about a guilty mind. Yeah, mens rea thing. You can't right. really be convicted. And of course, if you're brain damaged or you don't have the capacity intellectually, intellectually impaired, you know, either born that way or come that way because of accident or injury or, or dementia or whatever else, you can't be held responsible for the action. So the laws always recognise that if the neural mechanism, the brain, is actually so impaired that it can't make choices, then you can't be held responsible. So it's kind of interesting, the, the concept the practicality of that has been there. So in the world now, people go, well, hang on a second, why restrict that to situations of illness or impairment or of gross impairment? Isn't it true a lot of the time? Isn't it actually people's responses to situations where you can map, you can watch on functional brain imaging, you can see the brain in action, you can see what it's doing, and it does that every time it's exposed to the same kind of stimuli? Isn't that really hardwired? Mm. where's the choice? Like, where's the choice? I mean, I don't choose for my heart to beat the way it beats. It just beats. Maybe my brain just acts the way it acts, you know? Well, let me give you, and a, the, it, let me give you a down-home example. Uh, last night, Thursday night, 
Um, and the rugby league season is young. And I like watching rugby league and I like watching it on the couch with the volume turned down because, and listening to music. And I've been working pretty hard and that's a, a very nice way of relaxing and decompressing for me. Uh, but I knew last night's game wasn't going to be a good one. And in fact, this morning it's been called the worst game of rugby league this century. <laughs> My daughter found this new show on Netflix about pirates, a comedy with Reese Darby and uh, – uh, anyway, I can't remember what it's called. And she said, why don't you watch that with me? And I kind of wanted to, but I, I kind of felt my mind go into autopilot. Thursday night, I'm tired, I've been working hard, I sit on the couch, I listen to music, and I found myself just kind of railroaded into that. And then she kept coming down after every episode and saying, it's really good, why don't you watch it, come and watch it. And I kind of wanted to, but I felt like my brain was on autopilot, even though by then I could tell it was a crap game. It's Thursday night and I'm watching the footy. And this morning I awake full of regrets. I sat on the couch and watched this terrible game when um, I could have been having a bonding experience with my daughter watching this highly amusing show. So I almost feel like, you know, I was unable to exercise at least a better part of my free will last night. Yes, habit. Habit. What we call habit. Yeah, how does that fit? And ingrained patterns. Yeah, well, we do do that stuff over and over again. I must confess now we're on that I have spent the odd Friday night in front of a game of AFL. I did see last weekend, perhaps the worst game of AFL I've ever seen in my life, thinking, why am I watching this? You know, kind of, Why am I watching it? In fact, several people in my house remarked, why are you watching that? Yeah. Habit. We do a lot of things in these habitual ways, and we have derived long degree of pleasure from those things. We've, those particular behaviours we have reinforced over a long period of time. We know expectations, and we find it very hard to move away from those particular things, even though rationally we could see that potentially better options are out there, which leads, of course, to... And, and sorry, just before the, we go on, that's kind of analogy with what you were talking about, about people who habitually commit crime or habitually take heroin or drink alcohol or... So, you know, this is a very... Watching the footy is a very low-stakes version of that, but trying to break away from that kind of has a slightly similar challenge, although with much lower stakes, I guess. Well, it does. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, James, about compulsive behaviours in general, but that's a severe end. Habits are habits. You know, we've got well-ingrained patterns of what we do each day. We've well-ingrained patterns of what we've found to be pleasurable, what suits us, what are the, as you said, low stimulus kind of environments. And to override those takes cognitive effort. And the, the assumption that that cognitive effort is easy you know, that there's no resistance to it. That free will, it's one of the things that sort of annoys me about the free will concept. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll just do that. You know, as if, as if it is just a simple, rational kind of, you know, A or B. Oh, well, equally likely that A or B is attractive in particular ways. It's not equally likely. In fact, it's highly likely there are reasons built in and now encoded, if you like, in your head, mm. that A is strongly preferred. It takes a great deal of uh, effort if that's the right word, cognitive effort or differentiation. And once you set out to do the other, there's going to be a response to that. You know, if you'd walked away from the rugby league game, even though you knew it was a rubbish game, mm. I bet you would have been thinking, I wonder what happens next. I wonder what happens next. I wonder what happens next. You know, I wonder if I just missed the try of the century. 
in the worst game ever. Yeah. You know, so the arousal and the distraction and all the other to do the other obvious kind of thing takes a fair amount of cognitive effort and overriding well-ingrained kind of patterns. And we've discussed before, whenever you override well-ingrained patterns, there's an arousal that goes with that. There's a, you know, hang on, what are we doing here? Why are we driving in the wrong direction? A feeling of discomfort. Yeah, the dysphoria. I love the word dysphoria. Dysphoria. It just doesn't feel – yeah, yeah. Right. Have we used that one before? Dysphoria. It just doesn't feel right. Right. You know, it just feels wrong. Yeah. Now, of course, people go, oh, well, who cares about how you f- – now, this gets said in my house quite regularly. Who cares how you feel about watching X? Right. And X is always sport. X is always sport. It's AFL. Not too much rugby league these days. But, you know, it could be the odd useless rugby union test or something. You know, how, who cares how you feel about it? You could simply choose to do anything other than that. And the truth is, I could choose that, but I would be somewhat dysphoric about it. I'd feel, you know. Weird. Not really. I want to do the other. You know, I enjoy this. And doing the alternative, just simply stopping in the middle of it and doing the other, not so simple. Yeah. People people talk about, you know, willpower. And if I'd had a bit more willpower, I wouldn't have watched that terrible game of football last night. If you find, you know, two heroin addicts and one is able to get off, you know, people he, that 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 one will be praised for their willpower, and the other one will be chastised, you know, chastised for not having sufficient willpower. And I have to say that I would say for me, the development of a bit of a will, self discipline, do things you don't want to do to get to the end that you want to get to. Is feels to me like probably one of the most important parts of my life, developing that in my early 20s and being able to, you know, do some hard stuff to get where I wanted to. Um, and I think a lot of people would say that about will and self-discipline. So we've been talking about does free will exist, but assuming kind of we maintain the illusion that it does, that idea of willpower, how important is that in doing some of these things you're talking about, breaking out of unpleasant habitual behaviour, and how can you grow willpower? Well, I think there are two concepts here, James. One is what you're calling willpower. The other is what people call motivation. Yeah. You know, how motivated you are. And somehow if you fail to override these habitual patterns of behaviour, you lack either motivation or you lack willpower. Now, to go to both of these in terms, I don't think people actually lack motivation, actually. Lots of people want to stop all sorts of behaviours, but find it incredibly difficult. And then people say, well, okay, you're motivated, but you lack willpower, right? And you go, hang on, how easy is that? Is, is it equally easy for all of us to override those particular things in these circumstances? It assumes by those who say they've got it. You know, I love talking to successful people, right? Because <laughs> they always attribute their success to their marvellous commitment, you know. No one should ever interview sports players after the event. How did you win the gold medal? Well, it was by drive, it was by commitment, it was how hard I worked, you know, basically I deserved it. And you go, what about the bloke who finished second, third, fourth and 15th? Did they lack the drive? No. You know, I, don't, I think that kind of idea that success is the inevitable reward for the strength of the commitment. Well, a bit the same about willpower, you know, if you didn't do it, you lacked willpower. I mean, it's not equally easy. My point is it's not equally easy for people to override certain yeah, things. Yeah. Relatively easy for some people. Relatively easy probably for me, you know, to walk away from the AFL if I wanted to. 
not that hard, yeah. you know. Um, in other situations, it is actually extremely difficult for people to move away from, we were talking about earlier on, drug or alcohol use or other sort of patterns of behaviour, you know, actually really difficult, not easy. In fact, as I think I've remarked to you before, I'm always amazed with people who are strongly uh, dependent on alcohol or other substances that they stop because the explanatory models as to how they continue are pretty straightforward. Mm. I'm always amazed that they, that they have some other element comes into play that at times permits them to cease that behaviour, to actually override the drive to continue the behaviour. So I think willpower is an interesting thing that humans have dreamed up. Oh, <laughs> okay. Say. What is that quotient? What is that thing yeah. that is required to overdrive it? And how come, how come some people can and some people can't? Now, again, the determinists that would say, well, you know, you're just kidding yourselves, really. It's not equally easy. For some people, it's relatively straightforward. The thing's just not as ingrained, mm. so they can do the alternative behaviour relatively soon. For other people, it's incredibly difficult, you know, to actually do that. And that willpower's not a good explanation. I think you've given a, a different explanation, which I or implied, which is part of the thing is you have to do the other thing to some degree. I mean, there is an issue of actually doing the alternative behaviour for long enough yes. to well, override, to relearn. Well, well... We've talked in our episode on addiction about uh, addictive behaviour, habitual behaviour and triggers. So if you have, I mean, even going back to my stupid um, football example, and by the way, if they, if one team happened to win that game by, by scoring a try in the last 30 seconds and they can't say it was hard work because it was just a fluke because someone kicked it and the ball bounced at a weird angle off the post. So they've just got to say, well, it's just a fluke really. But anyway, um, if, if I have a, a set of triggers, Thursday night, working hard, the football's on, that kind of puts me in the mindset of getting into that habitual behaviour, like people who drink alcohol or gamble or take heroin might have a certain amount of triggers. I'm on this street, I know a dealer on this street, there's a pub, whatever. If you can replace them with some other habitual behaviour and other triggers for a while... Uh, it's Thursday night, I always ask my daughter if she, there's some TV show she wants to watch or it's Thursday night, I always go for a walk or whatever. And the first few times you do that, there'll be a feeling of discomfort and I don't want to do it and I want to go back in my normal way. But after that, you start to lay down new pathways and create a new habit that overrides the old one. And is that kind of what you're talking about and similarly useful for stupid little habits like my footy ones? as well as big, dangerous ones like drinking, gambling and taking heroin. Yes. Mm. Good. Absolutely. Change the pattern of behaviour. <laughs> whatever the, whatever the you know, socially acceptable better thing you should have done in the first place. <laughs> you know, not lie around on Thursday nights or anything. Yeah. You've replaced it with something else that has its own sets of rewards, its own sets of pleasurable things. So although it's dysphoric to do it in the first place, to abandon the footy and have, take up this alternative thing with a family or whatever else, after a while, it becomes an equally pleasurable or an equally desirable choice. Yeah. You know, something you're, you're equally happy to do. You're happy to watch, still happy to watch the football if you have to, but you're equally happy to walk away and not be distressed about it. Yeah. So the, the more behaviourally orientated would say exactly. That's exactly. And in fact, those people who have a lot of free will, you know, they have a lot of choices. They, there isn't a great deal of loss in moving out between yeah. different sets of things because they're equally happy to do certain this or do that and they're not particularly distressed really. 
you know, with one choice or another. Mm. It hasn't, doesn't have the consequences in terms of their internal emotional state. And this is where the, the recurring theme of this podcast, it's that internal emotional state that often really determines the behaviour, not the thinking about it, which is often made up afterwards to explain <laughs> what actually happened, mm. the cognitive kind of bit. But you're quite right. You've got to think about that. You've got to plan that. You've got to actually develop that thing. Okay, I'm going to have to have here an alternative we well worked out plan. If someone just arrives in the middle of the Thursday night footy and turns it off and says, we're going out now. Then you go out. <laughs> but if well, you're, I say you get distressed. You get distressed. If, you go, hang on, that wasn't my choice. <laughs> if you're sitting around alone thinking it's Thursday night, I really said I wouldn't open that bottle of scotch or I really said to myself – I wouldn't go to the pub, you know, because I want to drink less. If you're sitting around alone with no plans and no other social uh, behaviour, whether it's watching the footy you want to stop or drinking too much, it's going to be much harder than if you have a concrete plan. Like I know I always have one glass of wine and end up drinking the whole bottle on Thursday night. So what I'm going to do is that I usually have my first drink at 7. At 6.45, I'm going to go for a long, long walk for about an hour and a half. And if I and, uh, and I'm going to call in my mate. I'm going to tell him that I'm popping in at 8.30 and I'm going to tell him we're not going to drink. And, and then I'll come home about 10 and I'll go straight to bed. So you've got to plan whether you, whether you manage to carry it out without drinking or not. Who knows? But at least you're putting yourself in a good position, yeah? Yes, James, you should take over behavioural training, I think. You could put yourself out in the market, I think, for behavioural training. I can't even stop watching. That's exactly right. I can't even stop watching the football on Thursday night. (laughs) But you know how to if you have to. But this is exactly right. I mean, it's a very good example. The the alcohol one I really like. People go, well, I only drink two drinks and then I stop. What is wrong with those people, you know, who have two drinks and then they drink the whole bottle? They've failed to exercise their free will. Yeah. They failed to exercise the choice. They had the choice, as if it was equally easy for each of us to stop mm. at that particular point. Clearly, those people who actually have problems with alcohol drugs, it's particularly not easy to stop in that particular thing. Yeah. Because this leads to a really interesting kind of behavioural conundrum. Should we punish the people equally? You know, if you say the person after two really who has alcohol drug problems and has a whole explanatory model in terms of their genetics environment as to why they're more likely to have a drug genetic, should they be equally punished? As those of us who really did have it more of a choice, it would have been easy to stop, but we did it anyway. <laughs> you know, you know. Mm. so one of the things has led to a, hmm, right, should we punish the guy more who actually had a good deal more choice because he really did have more of a choice. He could have more easily stopped it feels like it than sometimes, the person who didn't. It feels like it sometimes works almost the other way. If you've got a habitual defend, offender who's, uh, you know, been busted, breaking into houses for to finance a heroin addiction for several years and have several... Uh, several convictions for it. You know, they might have got a bit of leniency for their difficult background the first time or two, but now they're just seen as a habitual offender. Then you have someone from an affluent background who has worked in a, you know, in a suit and they go the other way. They're almost seen by court sometimes as a slightly more tragic case and a good person who's who's fallen off the straight and narrow, but they'll straighten it, straighten themselves out. So even though they had more choice, they might get even more leniency. Yes. 
one-off bad choice. Oh, look, he's a terribly good person. You've been in the court chambers. You're going to turn up with a list of character references, you know, size of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Look, he just made the one bad choice. Okay. Yeah. And he went, he's not an habitual defender. He won't do it again. But that bloke has been here 15 times. He's an habitual offender. We've got to punish him some more. Well, the behaviourists would say kind of, kind of interesting, perhaps the reverse. <laughs> you know, perhaps the bloke who's done it 15 times, really, for a whole lot of reasons, is not actually able to or stop. is capable of making different choices to stop. I mean, the, the drug addiction associated with crime that you use as the example, I think is the obvious and one of the best examples of that. And why, as a complete aside here, fair amount of evidence that drug courts focusing on health rather than courts focusing on punishment are more likely to lead to better outcomes in that particular situation. But it is interesting that in the law we kind of have the reverse. Ah, oh, he's such a good bloke, bad choice, you know, yeah. let him go, let him go. Yeah. You know? But actually, if the concept of free will exists, it probably applied to that bloke. He probably could have. Now, even in that situation, it's kind of interesting as to why people who otherwise seem nice, socialised people do make bad choices. So there's another kind of issue about, you know, for another episode, just kind of how psychopathic are they? You know, how much did they think they'd get away with it, right? You know, they thought it wasn't just a bad choice. It wasn't just a spur of the moment thing. They expected to get away with it in a particular way. They knew they had a choice, but they made a judgment that, you know, I'll probably get away with it in a particular thing. That's this thing from the one-off bad choice. Well, lots of- I think the issue is that, that, I mean, choice remains a really important kind of concept in behaviourism. I mean, to take it one step further, I mean, there are choices. There are, there are in many, many situations, there are a variety of different outcomes that are possible, <laughs> if you put it in straight behavioural terms. You know, it's not inevitable that certain behaviours, and particularly in humans, you do see a range of different possible outcomes. And why people go for one or another in certain situations is where a lot of behavioural research goes on. You know, what, what's the loading, the valency? What, why, why in certain situations do people go in unexpected directions? Mm, that, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? The, the outliers that at least give the very compelling illusion of exercising free will. Yes. So I was alluding to earlier on with drug and alcohol things. I personally find it much more interesting when the unexpected happens. Yes. Yeah. You know, when the unpredictable happens. Now, did the person just, as we're discussing, choose to be different? Or what sets of contingencies were actually operative? That they went down a very unusual path, unpredictable path. Now, James, on take examples in your life where people, you know, random acts of kindness, when unexpected things happen, <laughs> really things happen, you think, geez, that's unusual. Mm. You know, what was the set of circumstances that, that in that person or in that group of people, you suddenly got the opposite outcome? Be- because we- In particular ways. I mean, most of us, I'm just thinking about me and my friends, um, most of us are pretty predictable. Like I reckon, you know, a lot of my friends I know from school and uni and back then if we'd all said to each other, what do you reckon you'll be doing in 30 years? There aren't many surprises there. But, you know, there's a lot of pretty predictable stuff. Not many people I know have gone a long way from where we would have guessed they would go, and, and probably most of us most of the time are pretty predictable and lead, well, you could say boring, but on the other hand, in you know, in our world, safe, comfortable, reasonably okay uh, lives, um, but definitely not ones where we surprise a lot of people a lot of the time. That's right, and I think that reflects the fact that 
temperament is very stable. Yeah. You know, that actually the underlying characteristics of individuals are actually very stable. Their emotional arousability, the way they tend to respond to situations. And as a consequence, the behaviours that flow from that are somewhat limited <laughs> in their repertoire. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Some of us can only do certain things. Okay, that's as good as we can be. We just can't be, you know. You know, they see this parents pushing little kids out on the stage. Now just sing and dance. <laughs> you know, you can be a star. The kids go, no, I, I can't. can't. You know, I can't. I can't do that. Well, I think that you know. Yeah, go on. Well, so I think the the stability issue is really interesting. Then, what I've found fascinating that in my personal life and also my professional life is suddenly people you wouldn't expect to be something turn out to be generous, and warm, mm. empathic, or do something do something really not not nasty. That tends to be more predictable. I find. But something really generous or mm. collective or things. You see this in social groups, of course, in response to crisis. There are many crises in our worlds at the moment. And in relation to crisis, social groups either come together and act very productively, which you don't see outside of the crisis, or they kill each other, or they descend into chaos. And then, you know, why in certain groups it goes one way or the other is, you know, a fascinating set of observations. What, what are the factors that are at work? to lead to, you know, such a variation in outcomes? Or what is it about certain individuals who suddenly do stuff that you really wouldn't have thought they would, but they do? Yeah, that's really interesting. If you're in a a social group, a group of friends, and you all kind of just toddle along for, you know, a number of years and you're pretty predictable, and then, as you say, a crisis, an unexpected event hits, someone, you know, gets really sick and is going to die or someone dies or someone experiences some unexpected problems – you really do find out a lot about the various temperaments, characteristics, characters of the others. When we're, because I, I think it's not often in our life. I mean, some people um, are tested very often, but for most of us, it's not often in our life we're really tested. We're really backed into a corner and asked some hard questions about who we are. But when we are, then we find out a lot about ourselves and things that, you know, we might have gone on for 20 years and and never known and then suddenly we've got to we've got to d- dig deep and see who we really are yeah that's a bit frightening isn't it but true <laughs> yes i think the truth is that is the truth is the unexpected challenging event which then sort of challenges the behavior repertoire it's outside of the normal habitual kind of thing as to where people then go and you clearly then do see a whole variety of different responses not so easily predicted because it has the obviously the environmental cue yeah is rare is rare it's distinct from we've seen it a thousand times kind of before so i think that's also an interesting thing is uh, for the for the straight determinists or the straight behaviorists you know not so easy to say what the person might do next because you haven't seen it before or it seems to be a variety of different um sets of uh kind of issues and i think it is interesting in those situations because i think that's where the kind of free will or the choice thing seems more obvious. It's more obvious to me anyway <laughs> that some yeah. people in those situations have made a much more active choice to go out of their way to actually do something generous, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something kind, something supportive. They had it, it was not required. It wasn't automatic. There's some cognitive or other process that's come into play. Well, I think an empathic process actually, to be specific, that, that, an understanding of the distress of the other has led to a certain kind of response that you wouldn't have otherwise, well, you couldn't have expected 
but it's actually really nice when it happens. Yeah. You know, so just in case people think I'm completely dishing the concept of free will, I'm, I'm kind of in favour of actually generous choices, you know, <laughs> just promoting, you know, if you have an option, take the generous choice, mm. you know, if you could. But also discouraging people from being very critical of others, you know, that the, they really should have chosen differently, you know, they really should have done differently. I often think that's a kind of failure of empathy, you know, really. about It wasn't that easy yeah. <laughs> as you might think. Well, not as easy for you. It's easy for you but not so easy for others to necessarily make those particular choices in particular ways. So, you know, it's, I, I think um, it's, it's a concept we need to challenge more. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, well, I, I, I get you know those of us who grew up in particular religious traditions. I'm going to say here, in my own case, not that I took it seriously, but hardcore Irish Catholicism. Right? <laughs> you know, you're always doing the wrong thing, and you're always choosing to do the wrong thing. And humans are just really bad people. You know, they're sinful and they're guilty, and it's all their own fault. Right? They choose to be bad. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, I'm not easy. sure that's necessarily the case. And you should feel bad about the fact that you always choose to do bad. As if, as if from a very young age, you're just doing, you're making a really bad choice and you should choose to be virtuous and good. I was just saying, you know, where did that come from? The rest of my life in the sort of neurosciences behavioural world leads me to almost the complete opposite perspective. Yeah. It's so unusual to be able to get outside of those things which drive our behaviour in, 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 in a whole range of kind of ways. It's actually, the point you were making, James, it's actually quite hard cognitively to override. It's quite hard to learn new behaviours. It's quite hard to override the intrinsic response, which, which is built into our behaviour every day, to make so-called better choices. But not that we shouldn't try. We should try. We, shouldn't try. Well, what- we should try hard. My takeouts from today are, look, if you look at it very logically and scientifically, free will may well be an illusion, uh, but don't live your life that way. Perhaps a better model is to think that, you know, the whole motivational industry might be a bit overblown and it's not as simple as just thinking it and it will happen. We do have the power to kind of change, but don't just think that thinking I'm going to change is enough, build in, as Ian would say, behavioural cues, build in new habits, make plans as to how you won't just, you'll divert yourself, I suppose, from the things that you normally do and want to stop doing. And the point Ian just made then, look for opportunities, particularly in tough times where there is an there is a chance to do something a little bit different and and do something nice, exercise your free will in that way. Um, be nice. It's always good to end an episode with be nice, isn't it? Uh, if you Exactly. Yes, if you've got any questions or comments or want to suggest further topics, do drop us a line at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind numeral2 at gmail.com. And Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them and you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14.